you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 16. We'll get to Matthew chapter 28 in just a moment. This is our second to last sermon on Matthew. Next week, we're going we're gonna to consider the Great Commission. We looked at it a few weeks ago and framed it in terms of world missions, and I want to look at it again in terms of the comfort and the hope it gives us. And the sermon will start to frame that out a little bit as we kind of land the plane on this series through Matthew. One of, the, one of the core questions we have in Matthew is, who is this guy, this Jesus, this messenger from God? And so Matthew frames it in a really honest way, and it's, it's good history. So Jesus Christ almost never calls himself the Son of God. In fact, I can safely say he doesn't in Matthew. He affirms it once or twice when someone asks him, for instance, the leaders, the chief priests asks him, are you the son of God? And he says, you say that I am. And it's an affirmative, but he never, it's never in his mouth. Jesus identifies himself not as the son of God, but as the son of man. He uses that over 30 times in the book of Matthew. In all of the gospels, 86 times that phrase is used, no one ever says it except for Jesus or someone who takes Jesus' words and says it back to him. No one ever calls him the son of man. It's uniquely given to Jesus' mouth as the, as the one who identifies himself as the son of man. And in some ways, that's the core question of the book of Matthew. Who is Jesus? And his title or his his, his way of describing himself is the Son of Man. So if you're with me in Matthew 16, I think this is kind of a pivot point in the book of Matthew. And, and again, we're kind of bringing all these loose threads together this morning. So Jesus is talking to Peter and all of the apostles, the Caesarea Philippi, verse 13, and he asks his disciples, who do people say, not that I am, but what? Who is the Son of Man? Now, Peter speaks and, and answers him, but, but at first, the, the disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets, and he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, you see the change up a little bit there, right? First, it's who is the Son of Man, now it's who am I? And Peter answers, verse 17, um, excuse me, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter's answer is spot on. In some ways, that'll be our outline this morning. I'm going to break that first part, the Christ, into two separate sections. But I, I think we can step back and ask, what energizes that great commission at the end? When Jesus says, go into all the world, what's the What's the why? Because he's not just sending them into the world, he's sending them to the world that's going to martyr them. He is, he is making a commission that's going to stand for millennia as the authoritative commission for his people to go share this message. What's the thing that fuels us, that rockets us out of comfort and into a place of possible suffering? And I think if you read the book of Matthew, the answer is, Jesus. And Jesus is a common name. In Hebrew, it would be Joshua. And if you read any Jewish history, you run across a whole bunch of people named Jesus. In English, it's like, you can't use that name for your kids. I mean, if we had named one of our kids Jesus, you'd have been like, ah. 
<laughs> like, most other languages, and especially Jewish culture, Jesus is just a name. So what's so special about him? It's not, it's not the superficial things. Is that he is the son of man. So what does that mean in Matthew? If I were to ask you to define the son of man, how would you define it? Old Testament culture gives us a little bit. So, so let me just kind of anchor two thoughts in the Old Testament theology. Ezekiel is called the son of man by God multiple times. In the Old Testament, it's the most prolific use. And it's almost as though God is saying, you're just human. I'm God, you're just man. So it's kind of like this, oh, son of man, who are you to think of yourself so highly? Type of idea in Ezekiel. You're just a frail, mortal man. Probably the most pivotal, pivotal theological text is Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days and receives dominion and power and authority over the whole earth, and all the nations serve him. And Jesus actually seems to be pulling from both theological themes in the Old Testament text and, and showing us this is who he is. He is a man who is frail and weak. But he's not merely a frail, weak man. He's also the one who's given all authority and dominion and power. So let's define from Matthew's theology who the Son of Man is. So if we, if we look at this text, even you get down to verse 21, they've had this theological discussion about who the Son of Man is. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and clearly we need to work on actually turning to Bible passages and looking at them. Verse 21 says he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. He's going to, he's going to suffer. Now, theologically, this, this tells us so much about who our Savior is. But I think we can just like use two little um, ideas as we look, work through this first thought on who Jesus is. He's God's suffering servant which requires humility and humanity. Okay, he's God's suffering servant. That is, he is God's agent. He's not merely just someone who's going through life and getting hurt. He is on mission. And verse 21 right there says, he must go to Jerusalem. And, and that must governs the next phrase too, and must suffer. So as God's servant, he is called to go and suffer for the sake of God's mission. Isaiah uses that idea of suffering servant, and, and, and we've looked a lot at Isaiah through this um, series. But I just want to take you back and look at this, this theme of suffering. If you were to go back in your mind to the temptation, Jesus has been in the wilderness. What has he been doing for 40 days? Maybe you should say, what has he not been doing? Eating. You know who doesn't have to eat? God. Do you know who has to eat? Creatures. Particularly people. I know I get hungry, then I get hangry, <laughs> right? Like a few, few weeks ago, one of our children was having a catastrophic, psychotic meltdown. And it was fascinating to watch as this child ate. Their psyche got calmer and calmer and calmer. We need to eat. We're creatures. We're, we're, we're needy. So here our Savior is. He goes 40 days without food. Satan comes in to tempt him. 
to eat bread, to make bread so that he can eat it, so he can satisfy his creaturely needs. God never, ever, ever could have been tempted like that. Why? God doesn't need anything at all. He is eternally happy. There is, there is no leverage point in which Satan can get a hold of God and say, you need something. God needs nothing. He's not a creature who ever tires. And yet we see Jesus in the middle of a thunderstorm, in the middle of a, a, a huge body of water, and the boat's about ready to drown, and he's asleep. How tired do you have to be to be sleeping in that thing? A 20-foot dinghy that's getting rocked by waves. And he's unconscious. Jesus describes himself in Matthew 8.20. He says, foxes have holes. Birds in the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to do what? He has nowhere to even lay his head. He, he, he has no possessions. He's a humble servant of God who suffers in chapter 17, if you're still in 16, you get to go forward a chapter. He uses um, that kind of reference of Elijah and John the Baptist. He says, I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Verse 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into, the hand, into their hands. Go down to chapter 20, verse 18. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. As Jesus is continually talking about who the Son of Man is, he's, he's the one who's going to be beaten, hurt, and suffer at the hands of sinners. Verse 20, 28. Excuse me, chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. So, so we have this, this picture of who the Son of Man is, and as Jesus speaks to this, he, he is calling his disciples to have a theology that recognizes the Son of Man is not only God. Right? God can't suffer. God never gets tired. God never gets hungry. God can't be killed. God can't give his life a ransom because he's the unkillable, life-giving God. And so Jesus is explaining to his disciples a theology that he's a servant of his Father who has come to suffer. This is his purpose as the Son of Man, to accomplish suffering, and through that suffering to accomplish our redemption. This is what it means for him to be the Son of Man. It means to partake of humanity, that he could suffer as one of us for us. If you were to go back to Genesis 3.15, and you can either go there in your Bibles or in your memories, if you know it. Eve is, is well, the serpent is being condemned. And there's this promise given as, as God speaks to the serpent. Says that there's going to be this offspring from Eve that does what to the serpent? Crushes its head. Jesus Christ had to be the son of man. He had to be human in order to fulfill the promise in Genesis 3 that Eve's offspring, one of her descendants born after her, would be the serpent-crushing one. And Jesus Christ is that as the Son of Man. 
Matthew points this out. It's also one of these phrases, the Son of Man having such a weak theological understanding in Jesus' day that he's able to use it and help them define it biblically. Have you ever used a term and realized people don't understand what you mean? Like they mean something entirely different. Jesus, Jesus is able to use kind of a, a blank term for them, the Son of Man, and help them recognize that it shows in the Old Testament this correlation that he's able to say, as someone who's mere man, I'm able to suffer, I'm able to die, but he's not only a man. Not only is he, because of his humanity, able to suffer and be the promised offspring of Eve, but he's also able to rule. Before we get there, I just want to bridge this by going to Philippians 2. Philippians will, Lord willing, be our next series that we launch in July. So I'm eager to go through one of these sweet letters that the apostle has written to a, a church like ours. So we go to Philippians 2. Now, Paul is writing this particular section for us to pay attention to Jesus and be like him. And sometimes we pay attention to Jesus and we worship him. Sometimes we pay attention to Jesus and we recognize implied in what he does is command force authority. Jesus forgives and you must also forgive. And sometimes Jesus does things like calms a storm. And you don't look at that and go like, ooh, I should do that. You look at that and say, he's God. I should worship him. This is one of the texts you look at and you realize this is for us to do. This is a command type of example for us. So, so in verse 6 of Philippians 2, although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be let me say it this way, maintained for his own benefit. But he empties himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That doesn't mean he appeared like us. It means he was like us in every respect. So think about the Son of Man context we've just walked through. Jesus is God's suffering servant, which required him to be both humble and human. Paul's saying that same thing here. He's saying Jesus Christ became human and verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Let me pause there. God wants you to be what? Humble. Right? Humble. Now, humility is not telling yourself you're a horrible human. Humility is not sitting on the sidelines saying, I'm not good enough to get in the game. Humility is, is not the person who, who, who tells the world how worthless they are. Humility is putting yourself under the command of God and doing everything and anything he tells you to do without complaint. It is to look at God's people around you as a target-rich environment for serving them like you don't matter. If we're using a sports analogy, a humble person does whatever the coach says. And if he says sit on the bench, they do it with joy. If he says get in the game, they're saying, where do you want me, coach? What do you want me to do? I'm ready to go. That's what a humble person does. Okay. Christ is humble. He gives us this example. He suffered for us. Now we come to verse, where are we at? We're in verse 9. 
Do you see the logical connection, therefore? Okay, so, so Christ goes through all this humility, therefore God does what? Exalts him. Highly exalts him. So when we go to the idea of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ is serving the will of his Father. He's doing so for the sake of his Father that ultimately we might get saved, but in doing this work of humility, he ultimately achieves what? Exaltation. Not because he achieves it, because God grants it to him as reward. So here's your pattern. Just like the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, you and I are called to follow in his steps, to be servants. What's the risk of serving others? Well, let's just assume the Brock home is like a good reflection of the normal human heart. When I say, hey, so-and-so, clean the kitchen. Do you know what I invariably hear from them? The list of five other names who aren't named in cleaning the kitchen. Dad, what about boom, 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 boom? What are they doing? Can you make them clean the kitchen with me? Right? Isn't that how the human heart is? It's like, if I'm called to serve and to, and to give myself away for others, what are they doing? Like, shouldn't they be doing something more? Well, that's the wrong perspective. That's not humility. That's actually rooted in pride. Here's what the human heart is called to do as it follows our Savior, is to ask our Father in heaven, where do you want me? And with our whole heart to serve at God's request for the glory of God and the good of his people. And to not ask questions about how much it's going to cost, how long am I going to have to do this, is anyone else going to pitch in and help me, and do they like me at the end, and are they going to notice and thank me for it? None of that stuff is relevant, because God never misses a reward. He never misses commendation to his servants. And he doesn't miss with Jesus. Okay, so I want to go back on track. I, was just, I think it's worthwhile to recognize that Christ's servanthood is not merely to be admired. It's to be our pattern, repeated, emulated, okay? So Jesus Christ is God's servant who suffers. He's also God's king that represents. Okay, so the son of man, Daniel 7, goes to the ancient of days and gets power and governs as king over the whole of God's creation. Going back to Genesis 1, verses 26 and following, God makes man in his image, sets them over the garden, and tells them to do What? Let me read it for you. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing. So God makes man and immediately gives him dominion, kingship, the authority to rule, to govern, to nurture, to, to, to cultivate the garden, to care for the animals. I mean, has anyone else wondered what it looks like for Adam to govern birds. Maybe like the fish at the bottom of like the trench in the ocean. How does Adam govern them? Here, fishy. Like, how does that work? How, does, how, how is he king over those things? As you read the gospel accounts, you see the kingship of Christ over the earth. 
So, so as you trace the idea of kingship, Adam sins and, and in many ways abdicates his position as God's representative king. He, 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 he messes it up, right? But then you follow that train of blessing down. And as, as God's blessing moves through the race, it ultimately then rests in Adam, or excuse me, Abraham, and God reaffirms his blessing through Abraham. Then from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac to Jacob, and from Jacob, in, in Genesis 49.10, it says the scepter will never depart from your hand. In other words, Jake, excuse me, Judah is going to have the king of Israel come from him. About 800 years later, a shepherd boy is born. His name is David, and he's from the tribe of Judah. And he's the youngest brother. He's the snot-nosed, annoying little brother they all leave behind because they want to leave him behind. When Samuel comes to anoint, they don't even think he's worth bringing because there's no way God would pick him. Sure enough, that's who God picks. And as David lives for the Lord and as a man who pursues God's will, God says, you and your descendants will always be on the throne of Israel. You will govern this nation in this place forever. One of your descendants will have this throne. Forever. So Matthew chapter 1. As Matthew begins his gospel account, how does he describe Jesus Christ? This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you were to read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you see that blessing traced to these faithful men, and ultimately then through Noah, then Abraham, Judah, then David, as you get back into the other historical books. And now Matthew pulls that lineage forward and says, Jesus is is born from this descendant. He's the agent of God's promise. So then you start looking through Matthew and you see these little hints that Jesus is this authoritative king. Chapter 9, verse 6. This man, a paralyzed man, gets lowered through the roof. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And it creates a little controversy. And then he heals him. The man gets up and walk. And Jesus says, I have done this so that you might know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. Jesus did what he did in the framing of that miracle, particularly so that we would hear and those there in that day would see this man can do something none of us has the right to do. He didn't do this through the temple sacrifices. He was not a priest over Israel in the temple system. He was not a Levite. He merely in and of his own person has the right to do what? Grant pardon. No one can do that except the appointed one from God. He has authority to forgive sins. In chapter 12, verse 8, he violates the Sabbath tradition. He says, I've done this, and you should know that the Son of Man... Get that title again. The Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. He is not one who is governed by the law. He is the lawgiver. He is the authoritative law interpreter. He is the executive and the court altogether. I mean, 
And I think this week we've heard that the court is supposed to get fired for all of its um, apparently tragic rulings. Jesus is the court, the arbiter of God's law, the authority in exercising it for the people. He is all of that. In chapter 19, verse 28, this is worth turning to, and then we'll look at chapter 25 as we consider Jesus as this authoritative king. Chapter 19, as we get down to verse 28, the apostles are kind of angling for positions of honor in the kingdom. Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, notice what Jesus is, is pictured as, sitting on the throne, ruling and governing through his apostles over the whole nation of Israel. But not only that, he broadens it and says, anyone who's left these things for my sake will receive reward. He is, he is not merely the judge over what is legal. He is also the rewarder. The one who, who exercises the authority to execute the law. That is, you've done well, you've lived for me, here's a reward. He sits on the throne and he governs. If you go to chapter 25, it's, it's more explicit. Jesus Christ is on the throne, really, we could say, of the world, not just Israel. Chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man, notice that title again, the Son of Man comes. In his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And the text continues. He will reward those people, all the nations, or he will judge all the nations on the basis of their relationship to him. We talk about audacity. Not merely is he the judge, he is the center He's everyone's north star. You, you walk away from him, and he will judge you forever. You walk towards him, and you are rewarded forever. And he will sit on his glorious throne in his own glory, in his own kingdom, and he will judge whom? All the nations. All the nations. I mean, hear the audacity of that for an Israelite. Rome has them under its hobnailed boot. And Jesus, this poor hillbilly from Nazareth, is telling them, there's a day coming when I, in all of my glory, you almost hear the crowd snicker, <laughs> glory. <laughs> you don't even have a house, dude. You said so. You don't even have a pillow. When I come with all of my glory, and the angels of heaven and all of the earth will be assembled before me, and I will divide on the right and on the left all people. And the basis of their judgment will be their relationship to the king. Because he's the king. If you're wondering how he governs fishes, I don't know the how of this. I think you've seen an example of this when 
Peter rashly says that he's going to pay taxes to the temple. Jesus is like, why would we pay taxes? It's my temple. Right? That's That's essentially his point. It's my father's temple. I don't pay taxes. Taxes are for me. And then he says, but Peter, since you made this promise, go throw, throw your line in the sea. Peter catches a fish. What's in the fish? A coin? How did that get there? I mean, Jesus seems to use natural providence, but I would assume in somewhere in that, Jesus is summoning the fish with the coin in its mouth. I mean, I don't know if it was something like this. Oscar, go grab a coin from the bottom of the sea. Come back and bite Peter's hook. But I think you see the king doing powerful work over animals. For instance, the donkey that had never been broken, that he rides into Jerusalem. You see the king showing that he's not just king over people, he's king over the stuff that fills his kingdom. Animals and fish, storms and water and wine. He's king over it all because he's the king. And he comes as a human king, exercising dominion like a king should. And unlike Adam, who tempted in the garden, falls, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and again by like Peter, and again on the cross, and he never falls because he's not merely the powerful king, he's our perfect king. Jesus Christ is God's servant who suffers. He's God's king that represents God's will, right? That's, that's how he's able to interpret the law and able to exercise authority. So he's God's servant who suffers. He's God's king that represents, and the son of man is God's son who saves. It's God's son who saves. This, to me, is a little more subtle. I think it's assumed by a lot of the framework of Matthew that, that Jesus is divine, and this is where I think we come into the resurrection really strongly here at the end. In Matthew 13, 37, this to me is a profound like, thought here with Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a parable of the sower. You guys remember the parable of the sower? I mean, I know it's been like a couple years since I preached that sermon. So some of you weren't even part of our church then, but, but for the rest of you, I, your memory is given an excuse. So the parable of the sower, there's, there's a sower that goes out to sow, and he, and he, and he casts seeds, some falls on a path, and, and Satan sweeps that uh, seed away. The seed is the gospel, Right? Uh, some falls among thorny soil, and, and the cares of the world are the thorns, and it chokes out the, the gospel. Some falls on the rocky uh, soil, and it sprouts up, but because of the rockiness, it's not able to get root. So the, the trials, the suffering of following Christ, cause that gospel seed not to really land its root. And then finally, some falls among good soil, and the root goes deep, and that bears fruit. Who's the sower? Who's the sower? Let me read this for you. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. And he continues on. I want you to consider what Jesus is saying. Gospel communication is ultimately his. But like, I, I maybe could say it more strongly, all gospel communication is his. To me, that's an impressive statement. 
Like, Jesus is the gospel, right? Jesus is the center and the theme of the gospel. But we come to the end of Matthew. Who sends out agents to share this message? So who has done it? Jesus is the one who sows the gospel. And maybe I say even now. He might be using an agent, but the ultimate gospel giver, the true evangelist of all men everywhere, is named Jesus, and he's the Son of Man. And he is calling men and women to repent of sin and come and be saved. This is the work of the divine Son who owns and is the gospel. That ultimately, the gospel comes and finds its source and broadcast in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to come to chapter 16, verse 27. I know this is a, a big theology of Matthew that we're trying to bite off a big chunk today, but stay with me. We're, we're getting near the end. So we come to Matthew 16, 27 and 28. You see similar themes here of the, the idea of kingship. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels. Notice it says, in the glory of his Father. By identifying God like this, what is Jesus claiming to be? Right? If he shares in God's glory, in the Father's glory, and again, notice, notice his introduction there. The Son of Man is doing this. And then verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. To claim to be the possessor of the kingdom, to claim to have the Father's glory, Jesus is implying that he is divine. Come to chapter 26 with me. Head towards the crucifixion. You'll see the question of divinity getting pressed by Matthew. Chapter 26, verse 63. He's in front of the high priest. Jesus has been silent the whole trial the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you that from now on, you'll see the Son of Man. Now, notice that sleight of hand. Are you the Son of God? I'm the Son of Man. He, he, he frequently just moves the needle a little bit, and perhaps he's trying to remind us that he is not, at this point, only God. He shares human nature as well. And so to identify him as divine might imply a misdirection that would be untrue, that he doesn't share in humanity. In fact, Jesus Christ has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. But he affirms, you say that I am, and then he immediately describes himself as the Son of Man. The high priest is inflamed with anger and says, this is blasphemy. Look in chapter 27, verse 40. You'll see this question rise up in, in Matthew's account here a couple times now. In 27, 40. You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Now, what temple was Jesus talking about? He's talking about his body. He's saying that if you kill me in three days, I will rebuild this body and resurrect if I'm the Son of God. Now think about that for a moment. Think about the question that's put in front of him. Continuing on, look down into, with me into verse 43. Again, they ask, 
right? He trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he desires him. For Jesus said, I am the son of God. Now, Matthew hasn't recorded Jesus saying that, but they're putting that into Jesus' mouth. So here, here we have passerbys, those who are passing by, criticizing, saying if he's the son of God, he can get off this cross. And then we come to chapter uh, 27, verse 54, where we have the earthquake and the centurion. What does he say? After the earthquake, after he's seen all these things that have happened, after he's seen the darkness, after the world has been moved, he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. So how does Matthew end? Look with me in chapter 28, verse 9. Remember that question? He said he could rebuild the temple in three days. If you're the son of God, do this thing. These ladies, having met the angel after Jesus' resurrection, verse 8 of chapter 28. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. If you're to go back to chapter 4 in the temptation, Satan says, Worship me. And Jesus says, you can only worship God. At the conclusion, Matthew has these ladies holding on to Jesus' feet, probably with tears of joy, filled with hearts of relief and anxiety and theological questions and wondering what has happened. And they're holding on to his feet and they're worshiping. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, you only worship God. Because he is God, he receives worship. Look down in verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped. And some doubted. But they worshipped. Jesus receives it. So here we have the answer to the question, can you rebuild in three days the thing that we're destroying in this crucifixion? Three days later, Jesus is up from the tomb. He's walking. He's talking. And what's the response of those who are righteous? They fall down and worship him because the Son of Man is the God who saves. He's divine. In fact, last couple uh, passages we'll look at. I want to take you to Romans chapter 1. Resurrection was central to the gospel, the apostle Paul reminds us multiple times in his letters not to let go of the resurrection. In fact, as you look through Acts, he gets in trouble for preaching the resurrection, he says. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Now let me go back to verse 3. Um, he's speaking about he's been set apart as an apostle by God concerning God's son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Now we're in verse 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his, what does it say? By his resurrection. Okay, so, so think of what Paul said. He was declared to be the Son of God. Not that he became the Son of God, but that he was shown to be so. In power by his resurrection. So how does Jesus Christ preach to us that his claims of being the son of man who is suffering servant, we've all suffered, that doesn't make us special. We can all say we're going to do kingly things in the future. I mean, who can count us wrong? They all died. 
But how does Jesus secure and bring all of his listeners to a certified conviction that the truth is true, that he's the Son of God? It's his resurrection. The resurrection brings all of these threads of who the Son of Man is together with an emphatic proof that death doesn't hold him. He died for sins and was raised because he's been freed from paying the full price of them. He shows himself to be the Son of God when he is raised from the dead. And so all of his activity leads to the point at which the resurrection certifies this thing is so. God records for us throughout the rest of the New Testament, either through people's testimony or through the, the collocation of their testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, that this is not merely the claim of the apostles, but in fact was historically proven by witnesses and many of them. It's proven by the fact that they died not receiving human desires because of their testimony, but in fact were killed and martyred for the faith. People lie to get stuff, but you don't lie in order to die. The apostles, almost all of them, died and stayed true to the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is God's servant who suffers. That requires his humanity and humility. He is God's king that represents. He's recovering from us what Adam lost for us. So he's God's agent. He has to be human and ultimately, he is going to be king of the whole world, all the nations and all people. And he is God's son who saves. And Peter would say it like this. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What secures your hope? is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, you have none. I would imagine over the next 100 years, we're going to have to do a few funerals here. Unless they invent some massive medical cure that they give to us all, we're going to have the bittersweet moments of remembering God's grace through the agents that sit around us who are afflicted with age, and disease, and ultimately die. But we have a living hope. We have the resurrection. And so we don't grieve as those who have no hope. But again, Jesus is, Jesus is the center of that hope, and if you are not pursuing Christ through faith, if you do not trust in him, if you have not turned from your sin, then you don't have the hope of the resurrection. And if we don't have a resurrection at all, it doesn't matter what you think of Jesus, you're not getting saved. But because he is the Son of Man and he's all that he claims to be, and he certifies with, with clear and emphatic power through his resurrection that he is all that he says he is, our hope is living and will never fade away. We have eternal life. This reminds me of Psalm 25. I think in a way that's meant to cause triumph in the soul. The psalmist writes about the sweetness and the blessing of knowing God. Who will receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation? It's a generation of those who seek him, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then he ends with this kind of rhetorical flourish. Lift up your heads, O gates. 
Be lifted up, O ancient doors, so that the king of glory can come in. Who is the king of glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your gates. Lift them, O ancient doors, so that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And Psalm 25 calls out to all of us, make your hearts ready, open them wide for Jesus. He is the king of glory. He is God's servant who suffered for our sakes, the glory of his Father. He is the king who reigns supreme over all of God's creation. And he is the son of God. By being man, he dies for us. By being son of God, he affects for all of us eternal redemption. Do you trust with all of your being in the King of glory, the Son of Man, Jesus? What puts fuel into your engine is that everything that was said about Jesus in the New Testament is true. It is that we worship the King of glory. It is that when we walk to a foreign nation that has never heard about Jesus, doesn't know English, and doesn't share our cultural background of religiosity, that the gospel penetrates the hardened heart, it frees from sin, it rescues from eternal death, it redeems homes, it saves people, it sanctifies them, and it shapes them into the very glory of Christ. What gives you hope as you look at your little 16-month-old baby girl is that the gospel can penetrate please forgive this, her hard and corrupt heart. Because believe it or not, at 60 months old, she is a bundle of sinful depravity and wickedness. She just hasn't figured out how to tell you yet. What is the hope for the marriage that you hope to have in the future? What is the hope for your grandkids that were born last week? What is the hope for you as your eyes dim and your body gives up is that Jesus is the Lord of glory and he is true and he saves all who come to him. With his message, Jesus says, go to the nations because it's a message that saves. Do you know this Jesus? Is he yours? If he is, then share that message. Repeat that message. Preach it to yourself. Share it with everyone around you. How dare you keep it quiet? Love it. Worship the God of that message. Preach it to yourself every day. And preach it without shame to the world around you. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the message of the Son of Man. The one who is humble enough to give his life as a ransom. Humble to set aside the glories of heaven. And we thank you that he was not merely willing to be your servant, but also as your servant, he is willing to govern us, to be one of us, to stand with us, to be a new and living way by which we can have access to your holy presence. Father, we thank you that not only have you made him an agent that stands with us as human, but through his impeccable and precious and infinite worth, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who call on him. There is no sinner who's too far away. There is no sinful soul that has done so wrong that our precious Savior cannot reach and save. 
Lord, I pray that you would save many through the powerful message of the gospel of your son. Father, I ask that this church would be transformed, reminded of the hope of heaven, reminded of the certainty of the resurrection. Lord, let us live for that day when we will see your son in glory and he will reward his faithful people. Father, for those who need to be reminded of the comfort we have in the gospel, I ask that you would encourage their hearts. Help us not to live for today as though this is all that we have, but help us to remember we serve the King of glory, the eternal King, and his kingdom is not yet come, but when it comes, we will reign with him and live with him forever. Father, help us to set our hearts on those things that are above and to seek those treasures that are above because we believe and the one who is our resurrection and life. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.